A quick note before we begin. This is a serialized show, so if you haven't already, go back to the prologue and start listening from there. Because this tragedy related strongly with the extremism in the uh, 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 in the name of the religion is shocking. Like uh, not believing how human can be programmed into a machine. Human is not supposed to become a machine. Hi, I'm Eva, and this is a soundtrack of Resistance, a podcast looking at the social history of Indonesia through the songs of Nabikula, the best band you've probably never heard of. Today we're getting into a pretty heavy topic, violent religious extremism. Through the songs that the band recorded in response to terrorist bombings that shook Bali and Jakarta in the early 2000s, and a turbulent political transition in Indonesia, which saw conflict flaring up in various parts of the country. The conflicts were dividing communities across religious lines and resulted in large-scale destruction, violence, displacement and the deaths of thousands of people. Akubukan Masin, or I'm Not a Machine, was one of the songs that the band recorded about this issue while they were at Record Plant Studios in LA, which we heard about in the last episode. But because Navicula found that one song wasn't enough to express their anger and frustration towards the ongoing extreme violence that was occurring in their country, they released more. And I found myself faced with a similar situation as I was working on this episode. I couldn't choose just one of their songs to represent the complexity of the situation, so I chose two. The result is a two-part episode about violent religious extremism through the songs Akubukan Masin and Everyone Goes to Heaven. These two songs provide an insight into Navicula's response to what was going on in Indonesia at the time and their struggle to comprehend how people can use extreme violence in the name of religion. In today's episode, we also have a special guest, Sydney Jones. She's a widely renowned expert on the issue of religious extremism and conflict in Indonesia. I wanted to hear from her about what role religion played in the conflicts and the bombings what makes people turn to violent extremism, and whether violent religious extremism continues to be a threat in Indonesia. The 2002 terrorist attack in the band's island home came as a terrible shock and shattered the image of a peaceful, innocent Bali. Beyond the tragic loss of life as a result of a suicide bomber setting off explosives in a busy Bali nightclub, the bombings affected the lives of many in Bali in a major way hitting the poor and already vulnerable especially hard. With massive job losses, school dropouts, as well as a four-fold increase in suicide rates on the island following the bombing. In a moment, we'll hear the song. It's an angry, frustrated song. A protest against the concept that a human can be turned into a killing machine. I'm here with Robbie, Navicula's vocalist and guitarist. Robbie, can you tell me about that time? What was going on in your mind when you wrote the lyrics? Just the pure reaction as a human being, as Balinese. 
this the first time happened in Bali. So everybody was in shock. And also the location of the bombing is not so far from the area in Twice Bar where uh, the independent music scene in Bali. This is our favorite spot to hang out. And it's really affecting uh, me as the writer of the song because it was by suicidal bombing. What makes this talk is how human can be like this cruel, especially in the name of religion. I was raised in the family. I'm not so religious, but my parents were so religious. And what my parents taught, all the religions teaching about love, about a kindness, about caring about the people. So, yeah, Aku Bukan Mesin uh, is the quick response for what I thinking about the people who has losing their heart, losing their entity as a human to do such a, a cruel, unimaginable action. It's just destroy everything. The, the, the effect of destruction is, is affecting everybody. Robbie wrote the lyrics to Akubukan Masin shortly after the bombing occurred. I still remember when I wrote a poem that's become Akubukan Masin lyric. Uh, at the time, I used to work uh, in a travel agency and then so tired making the cancellation for reservation that impacted by Bali bombing. I'm so angry, I'm so confused, I'm so frustrated and then all this feeling, I just transform it into a poem and that's capturing what I feel at the time. We'll hear about the process of creating the complete song a bit later in the show, but now let's listen to Akubukan Mesin. Force me to follow you. I have my conscience. I am the master of myself. I won't eat thorny fruit without first peeling its skin. I am made from love. Your God is my God too. I am not a machine. I have my own principles. I'll not be caged by blind beliefs or kill for a ticket to heaven. I'm not a machine. I'm not a machine. Not a machine. Robbie, the line in the song, I won't eat thorny fruit without first peeling its skin, what do you mean by that? When we're talking about uh, race, religion, or ethnic, Indonesia is pretty sensitive. This kind of action can only be done by somebody that learning something, but only in the skin level, in a superficial level. Uh, then it's so many uh, misinterpretation of what the core of the religion uh, it's also the era 
of identity political movement is also used by the political organization how to gain their follower which is actually for for me disagree about this way like if this issue is so sensitive why you use this for your political benefit because that's happened in Indonesia simultaneously the bali bombing the conflict and a lots of parties selling religion as their commodity this is make everything become worse and we agree that in Indonesia we so diverse and we want this diversity can live together in harmony thanks robbie now let's take a step back and consider what was happening in indonesia at the time i first moved to indonesia in 2002 it was just a couple of weeks after the first bali bombings occurred i moved to indonesia for a job with the world bank to work on a project that was supporting conflict ridden areas of the country These conflicts were often reported as religious conflicts, but it's more complicated than that. And to help explain the situation, I invited someone who's probably the most knowledgeable person out there on the subject. Sydney Jones is the director of the Jakarta-based Institute of Policy Analysis and Conflict. She's lived in Indonesia on and off since 1977, having previously worked with the International Crisis Group, Ford Foundation, Amnesty International, and Human Rights Watch. She's highly respected as an expert on Islamic radicalism, terrorist movements, as well as separatist, communal and ethnic conflict in Indonesia. I'm a huge fan of hers and have been a long-time admirer of her work and was extremely honored that she agreed to speak with me for this podcast. We spoke via Zoom call. Sydney's currently in New York, and I called her from my home in Bali. It was a windy and rainy night and we had a few technology issues, so the sound quality is not great. And just before we jump into the conversation, a quick note to set the context about Indonesia at that time. So, President Suharto was Asia's longest-serving leader. His 32-year dictatorship was considered to be one of the most brutal and corrupt of the 20th century. Indonesia suffered badly during the Asian financial crisis. And as the effects of the crisis were being felt by millions of Indonesians in the form of unemployment and food shortages, social tension and unrest escalated and exploded in large-scale violent riots across the country. In universities, students demonstrated for political reform and many were killed during this time. On the 21st of May 1998, President Suharto was forced to resign. Hi Sydney, thanks so much for your time. No problem, no problem. So the first thing I wanted to ask you about, what was going on in Indonesia during the late 90s and early 2000s? There was a lot going on in the immediate aftermath of Suharto's downfall. And one of the things was that central authoritarian control had been very suddenly lifted and lots of tensions had been simmering under the surface. The Suharto government had destroyed a lot of the traditional structures a lot of those structures that could have prevented conflict were no longer present so that loss of traditional authority the loss of the centralized control more generally and the tensions that had been building up in many different areas for many different reasons all came to a head And when you add to that 
the fact that in some areas there were people who were deliberately trying to stir up trouble to gain political advantage, you have a recipe for real serious violence. At this time, conflicts were occurring in five provinces of Indonesia, but for this discussion, we'll focus on two, Ambon in Maluku and Poso in central Sulawesi. In Poso, between 1,000 and 2,500 men, women and children died as a result of the conflict, with thousands more injured and an estimated 50,000 people being displaced. In Maluku, the estimates of conflict deaths range from 5 to 10,000, with the displacement of 700,000 people. Sydney, what role did religion play in these conflicts? In Maluku, what happened was that you had had demographic change taking place over many decades, but particularly in the last years of the Suharto government, there had been a displacement of the traditional Christian elite by a Muslim elite. It became more important if you wanted to be part of the power structure to be Muslim rather than the Christian. And so that displacement combined with in-migration of many migrants of Muslim background, that upset the demographic balance, which had been about 50-50 between Muslims and Christians, in a way that contributed to the tension. So it took only one little incident to simply set fire to all that kindling. And it wasn't initially a religious conflict, but it quickly became one as different sides mobilized the people that were easiest to draw into crowds to support their particular side of what was basically an urban brawl. So Ambon turned into a a religious conflict between Christians and Muslims. But what was quite interesting is that there was a completely different understanding of that conflict internationally as opposed to domestically. If you went to the U.S., it was as though it was all persecuted Christians being attacked by vicious Muslims. And the fact that you had the Protestant church being a key player in the conflict meant that the source of information was only from the Christian side. Whereas in Indonesia, it was overwhelmingly information from the Muslim side. So you had these two different perspectives of the conflict with each side only getting information that reinforced its position as we the victims and you the perpetrators. And this also contributed to the intensity of the conflict. This was before social media, but It was a time when videos on CDs were circulating all over the place and sources of information were critically important. The only way you could get a true story was to talk to both sides and get half the story from each and then put it together. So religion was used as a tool to mobilize people. Yeah, that was a a factor in Ambon 
in Poso, it started out as a political power struggle at the Kabupaten level. So Kabupaten is an administrative division. It's the English equivalent of district or agency. And two people competing for power each tried to mobilize supporters on their own side. And that was another uh, factor that helped turn what was a political power struggle into a very bitter religious conflict with people aligning on either side. And what role does the media play in exacerbating conflict or fueling conflicts? The media was both a fueler of conflict, but also a critical part of the peacemaking process. Mm. And one of the most important groups in Maluku was something called the Maluku Media Center, where journalists committed to portraying the truth and trying to dampen down some of the disinformation that was circulating played just a really important role in getting out accurate information in a way that did play an important role in easing tensions. There were an extraordinary number of people who were deeply committed to uh, peace. Glenn Fredley was one person who played an important role in trying to bridge some of the gaps. And he was just uh, a wonderful, wonderful figure in that regard. And he's a great loss. Glenn Fredley was a hugely successful and highly respected singer and songwriter in Indonesia. He was an outspoken campaigner on human rights and justice. Glenn was originally from Ambon and was very involved and invested in the peace process there. He pushed for the protection of people's rights to religious freedom and freedom of thought in general. Together with director Anga Sasonko, Glenn produced a film, Cahaya Dari Timur, Light from the East, which tells the story of a football coach trying to mend the severed threads of brotherhood in the area through sports. The film won the Best Film Award at the 2014 Indonesian Film Festival. Glenn, through his foundation Rumabeta and the organization I co-founded Copernic, were making plans to work together to support communities in Ambon. Tragically, he passed away last year at age 44 and is a huge loss to Indonesia. Sydney, the type of regional violence that we saw at the time, it's generally disappeared in Indonesia. Why is that? I think everyone saw the eruption of violence, just uncontrollable communal violence in both Ambon and Poso as the specter of what could happen if you let things get out of control. And so no Indonesian government has been willing to let any situation get even close And I think there's an awareness now that there wasn't of not only how dangerous these conflicts were, but how easily they can be manipulated. So besides these regional conflicts in the 2000s, we had the bombings in Bali, in Jakarta and in other places, and it appeared that foreigners were the main targets. Why was that the case at the time? Basically, there were several reasons why foreigners and iconic foreign buildings, uh, such as luxury hotels with Western brand names, 
became targets. And it goes back to the declaration in February 1998 by al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden that was a declaration of war against what he called the International Christian Zionist Alliance. And the global jihad hadn't really seemed to make that much difference when that declaration was originally issued. But then we did have Ambon. And what Ambon and Poso did was to basically put a local spin on that declaration of war. Suddenly, when Muslims were dying in Indonesia at Christian hands in local conflicts, that enabled local extremist groups to basically translate what was happening into that declaration of a global jihad. And so Westerners and this anti-Islamic front became the enemy in a way that it was important to attack. So that was one factor that made Ambon and Poso become the rationale for an attack against foreigners in Bali. It seems like a far cry, but it was a direct link in the minds of the Jamaa Islamiyah people who undertook the bombing that attacking Westerners was a way of getting at this Christian Zionist alliance that was killing Muslims in Ambon and Poso. But there was another very interesting factor that's um, worthwhile remembering. In February and March 2002, so only a few months before the Bali bombing, there had been a massacre of Muslims in Gujarat, India, by Hindus. And that was actually one of the reasons for choosing Bali. It wasn't just that you had a den of iniquity and bars and Western tourists. It was also very specifically because Bali was a Hindu place, and this was one way of wreaking vengeance on Hindus for the Gujarat massacre. And why haven't we seen similar types of violence in Indonesia since then? Foreigners continued to be the target up through 2009 and the hotel bombings. And after Bali, all of those anti-foreigner attacks, so the 2003 Marriott hotel bombings, the 2005 Bali bombings and the 2009 bombings of the Ritz-Carlton and Marriott hotels in Jakarta. All of those were carried out by a former Jamaa Islamiyah member from Malaysia. Important also to remember what was going on internationally with the invasion of Iraq in 2003 and so on. But what then happened is that in 2010, onwards, police and not foreigners became the number one target of terrorist operations, justified ideologically by the fact that they are the major obstacle to the implementation of Islamic law. Also, there were a lot of Indonesians that didn't understand why foreigners were being attacked since they weren't engaging in attacks on Muslims in Indonesia. And what's the situation right now? Is violent extremism still a major threat in Indonesia? There is an ongoing threat, although 
it's important to keep it in perspective because if you compare the death toll from terrorist actions in Indonesia with the Philippines or Thailand, for example, Indonesia is in far better shape with very few deaths each year from terrorism. And it's interesting that Jamaa Islamiyah, the group that did the Bali bombing and which stopped using violence from 2007 onwards, there hasn't been a single incident of the use of violence by J.I. since 2007. One of its intellectual members wrote an article where he said, just think about the groups that have been engaged in nonviolent advocacy for Islamic law and those that have been involved in violence, which group has actually achieved more? And then he went through the kind of groups that had sponsored local regulations that were influenced by Sharia law, by Islamic law, about banning bars and ensuring proper dress for women, proper in quotation marks there and so on. And it was the nonviolent groups using democratic space that had achieved far more than groups that had used violence. And one of the the conclusions of this particular author was that J.I. should be focusing more on political infiltration than on jihad. I wanted to highlight this point that religious extremism and violence tends to be frequently associated with Islam, but there are plenty of examples of non-Islamic violent extremism, right? Right. And when we're talking about Indonesia, because it's a Muslim-majority country, the extremist groups that have been operating here have been overwhelmingly operating in the name of Islam, although we have examples of intolerant Christian groups, but except for the Ambon and Poso conflicts, not violent Christian groups outside the context of those conflicts. But we have violent Buddhist groups in Myanmar. We have violent Buddhist groups in Sri Lanka. We have violent Hindu groups, the Shiv Sena operating as an arm of the BJP in India look at all of the violent Christian groups operating in the United States these days. So no religion has a monopoly on violence. Okay, thank you, Sydney. In the next episode, we'll continue this conversation and explore some of the reasons why people become violent religious extremists. As we were recording this podcast, a church bombing occurred in Makassar in South Sulawesi. 14 people were injured in the attack and news reports indicate that the bombers were a newlywed couple in their early 20s and they were associated with the pro-ISIS Jama'a Ansharut Daula or JAD group. I checked in with Sydney to get her insights and she said that while it's still too early to know the full story behind the Makassar bombing, it looks like the male bomber was part of the same pro-ISIS group as Rizaldi. Rizaldi was killed by police in a 6th of January raid. Sydney said that this bombing could have been a combination of factors, a desire to avenge for Rizaldi's death, a desire to do a jihad operation as the holy month of Ramadan approaches, 
and a desire to attack a church in the lead-up to Easter, when the number of worshippers would be higher than usual. She did note, however, that this is speculation at the very earliest stages of investigation, and it'll be weeks before we have a fuller picture. Our thoughts are with all the victims of the bombings and their families. Right now, I wanted to come back to the song, Akubukan Masin, back to the music that Navikula was creating during the time of turmoil in Indonesia. Robbie, Navikula's music is clearly influenced by events in your environment at a particular point in time. Can you talk about that a little bit? As an artist, it's really important to capture a moment. I see Navikula is a journalistic using music as the media. So it's really important to, to capture the original feeling, what we feel at the time. And then this is like a historian writing a journal through music. So it's become a, a marking of what's happening on that time. I appreciate Bali as our environment is supporting us to do this to do using music and art to express ourselves. Everyone needs to channelize their feeling and to express themselves. Yeah, I, I, I can't imagine if I don't have this, you know. The environment where you grow up, it's so important. I'm so lucky I have access to guitar rather than a gun to express myself. And I believe music or art is a healthy uh, form of expression. The poem that Robbie wrote right after the bombing became the lyrics of Akubuka Masin. I wanted to hear from Robbie Dadang and Gambol about the process of creating the complete song. Here's Robbie. In the process of making Akubuka Masin, we were jamming at Made's house and Dadang start uh, to come with this uh, sketch riff. <laughs> And then Gembul responded with the drum like a And then Made coming with the groove And then I make a development with the catchy riff Uh, when I was starting to hum the song, then I was remembering to the poem that I met before, uh, the poem about Bali Bomb. What about you, Dadang? Uh, this feeling for me, like, that time's like totally complex. So we made the song, you know, jamming, and then yeah, uh, we got this riff, and then everyone like. Jamming, so with all the complex emotional things, all the artistic the riffs, the notes, everything, we just crazy fight in the studio. <laughs> yeah. And Gambo? For me personally, I'm, I'm when the song of Aku Bukan Mesin is like I'm doing it a little bit emotionally, you know, like you got anger inside you while you're doing it like if you memorying the the bombing tragedy it's mixed emotional angers you can see how you hit your drum with your emotional like 
just try to blend it with the message of the songs, the lyrics that Robbie wrote, that like the guitars that Donkey play, you know, it's almost a anger sound, you know. I can imagine this must have been a really intense time for you guys. The issue of this ethnic or religion conflict is a big topic. So uh, one song cannot accommodate that. So that's why we made many songs talking about this issue. Like we made Suramwaja Negri, Everyone Goes to Heaven, Budi Sibrani Mati, and Aku Bukan Mesin. In the next episode, we'll explore one of these other songs, Everyone Goes to Heaven. So we'll be hearing more from the band, more from Sydney Jones, as well as from Heidi Arbuckle, an expert on tolerance and the role of the arts and music in creating a tolerant and informed society. And just one more point on Akubukan Masin. An interesting thing happened with this song in that it ended up having multiple meanings, right? I see it associated a lot with Labor Day movements and workers' rights. Was that unexpected? Yes. It accidentally happened. So, uh, the first idea Aku Bukan Mesin is for our feeling or our disappointment about the religion conflict. But, one time we play in the uh, May Day, and spontaneously on stage, the vibe of Aku Bukan Mesin actually is represent of being the spirit of the union labor with the, and that people will be connected to the Aku Bukan Machine. Yeah, we labor, we're not a machine. Can be like a, the greedy boss that's trying to uh, absorb all the resources from their employee. So it can be multi-interpretation. And then, accidentally, it's fit. So after the, the, the bomb is become like a long past, then Aku Bukan Machine is more connected how the company should treat their employee or uh, union labor anthem. And that's, it's surprising me that actually the one song can be multi-interpreted and to be related into so many issues. Thanks, Robbie. Yeah, thank yeah, you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So that's it for today. Thanks for listening to a soundtrack of Resistance and join me next time for the second part of this episode. A soundtrack of Resistance is written and hosted by me, Eva Wojkowska, and produced by Gede Robbie, together with Gina Long, Andre Dananjaya, and Vanessa Harsanto. Sound design by Gede Robbie, sound production and mixing by Tude Artasedana and Tegu Narakusuma. All music by Navicula. You can listen to Aku Bukan Mesin and other Navicula songs on Spotify. The script consultant is Joanne Sharp, web design and artwork by Jason Sims, Penny Lane, and Major Tom. To learn more, visit soundtrackofresistance.net where you can find more information about today's episode as well as source and bonus material. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe via Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>